Hey, Will. Hey, Tim. For the podcast today, we watched the 1965 movie Heroes of Telmark, which tells the amazing true story about a group of brave Norwegian resistance fighters keeping Nazi Germany from getting the supplies it needs to build an atomic bomb. As the proud son of Norway, I'm sure you watch this movie every year around the holidays and kept a picture of the famously not-Norwegian Kirk Douglas on the wall above your mantelpiece, right? <laughs> Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living, and I'm happily joined today in the podcast studio over Zoom and across the ocean, across the Atlantic Ocean, by returning special guest Will Satron. Will, welcome back. Happy to be back, Tim. Longtime listeners will remember Will from our previous episodes on the, uh, when we did the atomic alcohol episode, 99 loop balloons, starship troopers, and more. Uh, since you last heard Will on the podcast, he's left the Washington, D.C. area and moved back to his home country of Norway. And, well, it's probably because he got a cool new job as a policy advisor for the Norwegian Defense Department and probably likes living there more than D.C. these days. I like to think it's because I wanted him to go do some on-the-ground research for the movie that we're here to talk about today. Will, was that about right? Yep, that's, that's exactly right, Tim. Thanks so, so much for joining us to talk about the 1965 British movie, The Heroes of Telmark. And as the movie's opening dedication text tells us, quote, This film is dedicated to the men and women of Norway whose bravery prevented Nazi Germany from getting the atomic bomb. It's based on the memoirs Skis Against the Atom. I love that so much, that title. Written by the Norwegian resistance soldier. And this is where I'm going to turn to Will because my Norwegian uh, is, it's, you know, it's, it's minimal. Um, what, is, what is this uh, gentleman's name? Knut Haukeli. Cool, yeah. So that gentleman wrote the book Skis Against the Atom. And it's a dramatic recounting of a crew of Norwegian resistance fighters in the German-occupied Norway during World War II, who risked their lives to destroy, and we'll get into the details of this, a heavy water producing plant that was part of a, a research center slash uh, like an electrical dam, hydroelectric dam. Um, and this is a pretty rare substance that could have been went to a bomb project. And, you know, that would not have been good for the Allies during World War II. So, Will, what do you know about this movie? And if not the movie itself, because it's kind of a little obscure for us, what is, you know, the real-life story? Is it known... Widely in Norway, what's your kind of origin story with this film? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, my origin with this film. Um, so I know it exists, right? Like, I've known for a long time that this movie was a thing. I'd never seen it uh, until last night. In terms of, like, you know, general Norwegian knowledge about this movie, it's probably, like, zero. I'm sure back in the 60s, probably was some uh, publicity around this. You know, it wasn't very popular in the United States, like in the box office. It actually mm -hmm. did better in the United Kingdom. And by virtue of that, I'm guessing that it probably did pretty well here in Norway uh, as well. In terms of like the actual like mission though, like it, this 
is fairly well known in Norway, um, but the details really aren't. You know, it's really interesting. So I read another book about this uh, called The Winter Fortress two years ago. And shortly after I'd read it, I saw one of the Norwegian people I follow on Twitter kind of, she was, uh, posted a picture of herself at this memorial for the British engineers, like the commandos that were killed as, mm. as part of this raid and was just like, basically being like, yeah, this is here. Nobody knows about it. It's not a super well-known phenomenon in uh, Norwegian pop culture, but it def it's a fascinating story. I'm glad that this movie was made. I'm really glad that that book that I referenced, The Winter Fortress, was uh, made because that really gets into the details, like um, references historical archives. It they interviewed several of the remaining commandos who who executed the raid. It's it's really fascinating. So this is a story that definitely deserves to be told, and I'm happy that we are contributing to that today. Yeah, uh, this is it, it's got a, quite a, a star backing, both in terms of the director and the cast for, for this movie. You know, it was one of those 1960s big big blockbuster films. Um, it was one of the last movies directed by Anthony Mann, who is mostly known for westerns like Winchester 73. I think I've actually even seen that movie. But the one that's always kind of fun here is he also directed in 1955 one of those propaganda movies that was somewhat made by Hollywood, but mostly written by the Pentagon. Uh, this is one called Strategic Air Command. It's like a love story about how great uh, the people that work at Strategic Air Command in the in the 50s were probably co-written by uh, Curtis uh, Bombs Away LeMay. It starred Jimmy Stewart. I know we're going to cover this movie at some point, but um, Anthony Mann directed that movie back in 1955. And, but for this one, for Heroes of Telmark, Kirk Douglas is the big star in this movie. He's a fictional character, Dr. Uh, Rolf Penderson. Let's hope that's close. Uh, he's a playboy professor at the University of Oslo. He knows a lot about heavy water and atomic science, uh, but you may know Kirk Douglas from movies like Spartacus, but also he was uh, a great character in Seven Days in May, which we covered on this podcast. Uh, it's about a, a military leader who tries to coup a, a U.S. president who wants to disarm the United States uh, in conjunction with the nuclear arms control treaty You know, during the Cold War, and Kirk Douglas was one of the stars of that movie. And we all know his his son, Michael Douglas, but may, maybe people don't know that he's also heavily involved in the nuclear nonproliferation community. He was a former board member of a place he used to work at, the Plowshares Fund. And I think he's actually currently still on the board for the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Did you ever get a chance to meet Michael Douglas when you were working there? I didn't. I think his last active participation in the board of Plowshares Fund was like the year before I started there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, he... Uh, that was that was a big deal and a big selling point uh, when I was uh, looking to start working. There was like, oh, we've got Michael Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was all because of this movie, and he got really interested in it when his when he was little. Also stars Richard Harris as another character, uh, Norwegian resistance fighter named. So they call him Knutstrand. Like that's that's the name, in, like Knut. the fictional name that they created for him. Yeah, Knutstrand. Yep, uh, he's uh, a resistance fighter. He's a uh, someone who maybe is aware of of, of uh, Rolf Pedersen, but uh, he's kind of draws him into the fight. Uh, people may know him from the movie Unforgiven with uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, but he's also the original Dumbledore in those first couple of Harry Potter movies before he passed no away. No way! Right, crazy. Uh, also stars Ulla Jacobson as Anna. Uh, who is the ex-wife of Rolf, uh, also a resistance fighter. And one quick small cameo I love here, Roy Dotrice, 
who plays this very sneaky character named Jensen in the movie. But uh, people may remember him if you're into Game of Thrones, like me and Will. He was the pyromancer, the guy who made all the wildfire in, in that show. But he's also the narrator of the audiobooks. He recently passed away, but he was the, uh, the narrator of all the audiobooks, which I love very much. He's got a small role in this movie. Uh, as Will mentioned, it didn't do great in the North American box office. Um, it did okay. $1.65 million, but it had a $5 million budget. But it did really well in the UK. Uh, critics thought it was about 67% fresh, which, you know, it's not great, but it's not the worst. Fans didn't like it all that much. Audiences, it was closer to 56%. But, all right. Enough about the movie. Let's get into the conversation about the, the plot and the new discussion that we'll do uh, in the middle and kind of throughout the episode. Uh, but two main questions I think we should think about. One, how close was Germany to actually building an atomic bomb in World War II? And how important was stopping its source of heavy water to prevent this development? And two, how did a commando unit of Norwegian resistance fighters with support from the British and the American forces you know, deal with this heavy situation? Which I'm really glad. Will, you're here. You've, you've, uh, you probably have access to all the archives, all that other stuff. So it's great that you're here for this. Let's get into it. Uh, Will, you want to get us started here on the, the plot discussion? And as usual, spoiler warning, if you've not seen this 1965 movie, don't tell anybody on YouTube, um, but it is on YouTube for easy watching. That's how I watched it for this particular episode. This is where it happened. This is how it was. The story of the heroes of Telemark. A heart-stopping motion picture. The stranger-than-fiction real-life story of nine indomitable Norwegians who prevented the Nazis from perfecting the supreme weapon which would have won them the war. Nine men who broke the barrier of human endurance, who risked a thousand deaths to change the fate of civilization. I want to know what's so important about heavy water. I want to know, Doctor, and you're going to tell me. I'm telling you nothing. Do you think that I'm going to sacrifice the lives of six people on the opinion of a playboy scientist? Two dynamic men. Two giant stars live again the real flesh and blood heroes of one of the most crucial exploits of World War II. Kirk Douglas as scientist Dr. Rolf Peterson. Richard Harris as Knut Stroud, resistance fighter. Ulla Jakobsen as the doctor's ex-wife. Stay quiet. Stay close. Stay with us. Come right inside the heavy water plant at Telemark and share the agonizing suspense as these saboteurs fight for your existence. The heroes of Telemark. It is a love story torn straight from the pages of real life. The heroes of Telemark. It is a picture of terrifying personal emotions lived against a canvas of rugged grandeur. The heroes of Telemark. It is an adventure that takes you over and beyond the edge of credibility to reveal the blistering realism of saboteurs in action. Will, why don't you get us started off here? Where, where, where does this movie open up? It opens up, the first opening scene is in the mountains of Norway. Um, a German convoy is uh, dr driving along the mountainside. Camera cuts to some Norwegian resistance fighters up on the hillside. And... Uh, They've got a big boulder that they <laughs> leverage with some sticks, rolls down, knocks a tank off uh, the road uh, out of the German convoy. Germans open up fire. Da, 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 da. And so then that kind of introduces uh, the German occupation, uh, what life is like in occupied Norway. So after this incident, the Germans execute a bunch of hostages in a nearby town. So that was very 
common. Like this was a this was a practice in Nazi occupied Norway and really like Nazi occupied anywhere. The way that the Nazis tried to suppress resistance fighters was basically by saying, if you attack us for every German you kill, we're gonna kill 10 local members and it's going to be random. In the book I referenced, Winter Fortress, they talk about one specific incident um, tied to the mission where basically a couple of Germans were killed or or some equipment was destroyed. I, I can't remember, but they lined up 20 prominent people from the town where this had happened and they just randomly picked 10 and shot them in the back of the head. Um, so that's kind of the, the, this, this tactic was commonly utilized and that kind of sets the stage for, for the rest of the movie. Yeah. The, the character they, they have that's organizing this is uh, a real life uh, leader of, of, of Nazi Germany who was stationed in Norway. He was uh, Josef Turboven. He was the, the, the Reich Kommissar who was, you know, in charge of this area. I guess his, his according to the, I, I read the same book uh, that you did and, and it was, it's a great resource on this. I think he was, it described that he was supposed to be accommodating to the Norwegians. I think their plan in Norway was it's life is normal, except we're here and we're going to borrow some of your heavy water and, and all of that. But he was uh, much more of a cruel and petty authoritarian. I think he was disliked even by the Germans that were there. And he tried to set up concentration camps in Norway. He was basically there, I guess, until 1945 uh, and then was, you know, tried and, and all and all of that. But the caravan you mentioned earlier that gets attacked by the boulder gets its way to a hydro plant. What is it? The Vermolk Norsk? Norsk, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the plant is Vermolk, but the company that operates it, which still exists today, by the way, is very hmm. profitable, uh, Norskidu, which is Norwegian Hydro. Um, and, you know, hydro, hydrogen, water. Um, ah. Yeah. Well, it's it's in the, um, the county of, of Telmark. And it is 100 miles west of Oslo. It's uh, this particular plant in the movie and in real life was experimenting in the production of heavy water. Um, It's actually been doing this since 1934. In the movie, it takes place in 1942. Uh, It's the only main place in Europe that's making heavy water at any sort of large scale. Basically, the, the German Nazi command there, they're aware of the experiments. They want to take over... They just simply demand 10,000 pounds of heavy water by Easter. Like the look of it, gentlemen? Most interesting. We are well informed of what you do here, Herr Nielsen. A little experimentation with heavy water, that's all. With deuterium oxide. Yes, yes, we know. The time has come to make a decisive transition from theory to practice. You've done enough experimentation, my dear fellow. This room has more significance for us than you can possibly realize. Well, one day, perhaps, you will realize. Forget about fertilizers. This tractor is acquired by the Reich to increase its production of heavy water by 400%. We want 10,000 pounds of heavy water by Easter next year. That's impossible. It's not at all impossible, Herr Nielsen. What is necessary will always be accomplished. All the more so when the whole future of the Reich is at stake. But what is the reason? I don't understand. That was a firing squad, my dear Nielsen. Let it be a warning. The plant manager kind of thinks this is impossible. He starts asking questions about why this is necessary. And, uh, you know, what Will mentioned earlier about the, the firing squad retaliating against the boulder attack. You hear the firing squads firing off on the distance. And that really tells the uh, plant manager to shut up and make the water heavier. So what is heavy water, Will? Is I, when I first time I heard about heavy water, I thought it was probably a new brand of Voss water that Mark Wahlberg drinks when he's working out. 
Heavy Water, it's really a fascinating piece of, of, of the production of fissile material. You know, so you usually make it uh, when you want to get to plutonium. The reason is you essentially do a nuclear reactor that burns uranium to make plutonium. You want to make sure that your neutrons that you do as part of this experiment, which helps to control the rate of fission, you know, you fire a neutron into an element of uranium, produces heat and also more neutrons that then go against and break up other uranium atoms and all of that fun stuff. You want that process to be slow and controlled. Normal water is not like there's too much going on. It's like it's too fast and you can't really have a sustained rate of fission. Heavy water though, because it has extra elements of hydrogen, means that you can actually moderate that reaction. Uh, the U.S. actually used um, graphite to do that during this particular stage of, of, of uh, nuclear technology. I think later they got rid of graphite and they moved to water. The Russians took over the graphite, as we know in Chernobyl, uh, that being a little bit complicated. But at this particular time, the Germans really were ahead of the world in terms of what heavy water can do. And you want to make sure, therefore, when you, as you produce this plutonium, heavy water is like a really important part of that. But it's super difficult. It's very rare. It's like uh, one part heavy water for every 41 million molecules of regular water. That's pretty rare. So what you need for it is you need a lot of water and you need a lot of power which is certainly what you would get when you have an electrical dam, uh, particularly at this, this location. So that's what they did. If The idea there is no one in Europe has this. Germany was certainly not producing at this level, so the Germans came in. The movie doesn't really get into it too much about how they find out about heavy water and all of that. We'll get into this other Norwegian-created uh, miniseries, on this particular story, and they actually get into the German side of this a lot. But you know, the Germans had figured out the use of heavy water. Um, uh, and we'll get we'll get out. we'll get into it a little bit later. But anyways, in the movie, they figured it out. They know it's important, so they've taken over you know this portion of it. But but luckily, someone at the plant hears about it and gets word to a resistance fighter, and that resistance fighter makes his way to the University of Oslo, which I know you're familiar with. Uh, what happens at the University of Oslo when we meet some of our other characters? Oh, yeah. Well, so uh, Resistance Fighter goes there. He's got some microfilm that's been passed on to him from the factory. And he goes and uh, finds Dr. Rolf Pedersen. And uh, he's in his dark room, supposedly processing some film and stuff. Resistance Fighter goes in. And, of course, there's Kirk Douglas, you know, uh, uh, tongue-schnogging. Uh, <laughs> um, some uh, some student of his. Is, right? that, is that Norwegian <laughs> for something? or? No, that that was me trying to do a lame Sean Connery schnogging. Uh, 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 I know, I know, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, no, he uh, so uh, Resistance Fighter goes in there. He meets Kirk Douglas. Um, he asks him to take a look at this uh, the microfilm, and uh, Kirk Douglas refuses. He says, "Oh, I don't have time for your petty stuff. You're getting." Norwegians killed, right? Referencing these retributions attack. It's like your silly antics are getting Norwegian citizens killed. I don't want to have any part of that. The resistance fighter, you know, like argues back and forth with him and then he kind of storms off. I'm not interested in your messages. My work is here. I've just seen you at your work. I'd rather embrace one Norwegian than kill a dozen a day, friend. Every time you people play Boy Scouts and blow up a few Nazi trucks, 12 hostages are shot. That's your great work? Keep it. A lot of Boy Scouts risk their lives to get this to you. Kirk Douglas does take a look at the film after he's left and then kind of realizes the magnitude of the situation. 
finds a resistance fighter who's kind of just waiting at the the entrance uh, into the university building and says, "Okay, fine, I'll, I'll I'll join forces with you." Yep, they want to get on a boat to England pretty quickly, so they smuggle onto a boat. They take over it. It's it's actually a pretty funny scene of them taking over this boat. You know, forcing the crew to make their way to England. There's a you know a little. I would I guess you would argue it's a dramatic scene. It's a little bit of a silly scene to watch these days, but I'm sure this. In terms of action, 1965 was pretty great because it has like Kirk Douglas like sticking off the side of a boat with a stick, pushing uh, enemy uh, underwater mines away and some other stuff. But it's pretty, it's a good scene. They, they get to England because he doesn't know, you know, I don't think Kirk Douglas at that time knew, was like, this is for an atomic bomb. There's literature out there that says the potential energy producing power of, of uranium. And they knew that heavy water had maybe something you could do with it. What no one really knew 100%, but the fact that the Germans were so invested in wanting this water and we didn't know necessarily what it was for, they go to England and they get a, like a brain trust together. They start mentioning um, that, you know, Albert Einstein and Robert, and Robert Oppenheimer and Enrico Fermi, all of these various American and European scientists and others have, have figured out that, you know, Germans are, are ahead of the, the allies in their race to master atomic fission. And that if there is an atomic bomb potential, uh, this is going to allow them to get even further ahead. We've examined this situation very carefully. And it's been agreed in London and Washington that the factory making heavy water must be destroyed without delay. Personally, I agree with you, Bill, that bombing is, in this instance, the most obvious method. Right. At the same time, we wish, if we can, to avoid large-scale civilian death. This is also clearly the wish of the Norwegian government. I suggest, gentlemen, that Dr. Peterson, who knows what's at stake, and Mr. Stroud, who knows his country backwards, be asked to return immediately to Telemark in order to resolve this question. That is, to determine whether a ground attack by commandos is practical or not. So they come up with a plan. They try to figure out, do they want to just bomb the hell out of this plant? But then, of course, the resistance fighters says no, because there's people that live there, right? Well, it's not like just a hydroelectric dam kind of in the middle of nowhere. There's a bunch of civilians that are there. That, that's exactly right. It's Vyukon uh, at the time. So Vyukon is the name of the town at the time. It had about 6,000 people, and uh, it's it's still a town, like today. So, And ultimately, that that is kind of why... Uh, why we they went down this path? Why the the sabotage operation uh, took place was was because of that. So they yeah they decided instead we'll send a commando raid in our our, our Norwegian resistance fighters to get on an airplane. They jump out of the airplane. They parachute uh, back into Norway. They they get uh, they get their skis. They get their machine guns and they make their way back to Telmark. I, I think maybe the person they were going to meet up with had been caught by the Germans. So they have to make their way to some sort of local uh, safe house. And it, I, don't, I couldn't tell in the movie if they knew that they were going to meet people there that they knew or whatever it happened to be. But anyways, uh, Rolf meets his ex-wife, uh, Ula, who was there. Uh, she's also working with the resistance team. And uh, this other guy named Uncle, uh, who's there. I think they maybe we're going to meet up with Uncle at the cabin, right? Uh, but Uncle's also involved in the resistance. Yeah. So they're all, they're all there. They're, they're exchanging some pleasantries. There's... Ho- of course, you know, the, 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 despite the hospitality that Uncle and, and Ula are showing... Um, everybody, Rolf, in a real 1960s uh, awkward scene, tries to seduce his ex-wife in bed, fails horribly. There's a great line in here that she says, which is... You see, it's not too easy, seducing your ex-wife. Students are much easier, aren't they? I just don't believe in you anymore. 
She doesn't believe that he's actually part of the resistance. She doesn't believe that he believes anything. Um, I imagine that even though this is a fictional character, but the backstory for it might be like Kim had an affair with his students potentially, and that's why they broke up or something like that. Um, but anyways, it's not on. They're not. They're not on great terms here. Yeah, and it's it's really funny though because like this scene is like this is the first remark I made in my notes. I was like, this scene is rapey. Yeah. underscore it's like, not, it's, not it's, a great way to introduce your like main character it's yeah definitely like po- post me to you're looking at this you're like wow that is like borderline sexual assault like i it's not even borderline it, it pretty much is like that that's yeah. No. Yeah. No, it's 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 pretty bad. Um, but despite this, you know, because of the mission, she joins the crew. She learns that the the Germans will have their heavy water supplied by Easter as they intended. They receive more kind of plans for what it's currently happening inside the plant. Because one thing we didn't mention is not only is this place a little bit further in the mountains, so but the, you know, there's a town, but it's further away. It's really it, you mentioned the title of that book, Winter Fortress. It really is a fortress because. The, the plant itself, where they store the heavy water and where they're producing it, it's almost like its own underground bunker. It's it's really deep into the mountains. Aerial bombing really couldn't hit it you know, very easily. There's one main bridge that goes to it, and that's heavily guarded. There's mines everywhere, landmines. There's searchlights. There's barbed wire. There's, I think, like 100 to 300 troops that are there from the Germans. There's anti-aircraft artillery. This is really itself a fortress. And it's cold, right? It's pretty damn cold there. You you can easily in winter freeze, you know, during the course of this if you're outside. But anyways, they still have to get there. So they go on a recon mission. They learn, um, Ula and Rolf, that the town is filled with about 6,000 civilians still. They almost get caught, but they pretend to make out. They're pretending their cover story is that they are, are like fiancés on their uh, a trip before they get married. That works well um, in terms of hiding what their true intentions were from the a German Nazi, who uh, probably Gestapo, who comes in and is, is checking things out. Despite what happened earlier, now Ula's fully on board, and she's all with Kirk Douglas and all of that great stuff. So now they're back together. 1960s politics. Yep. Uh, why don't you take over from here? Uh, what, what, do we, what do they do uh, after that weird scene? Yeah, so, well, uh, so this scene, right, is part of their essential, like, scouting mission of the fortress, as you mentioned, right? Like, figuring out, like, all these things that you mentioned, how fortified it is. Um, and it's really, it's it's part of this decision that they have to make about, oh, are we going to actually try to bomb this? Or are we actually going to do a commando mission, right? That is kind of a question that is introduced in a scene earlier in the movie. So this mm-hmm. scouting mission is part of that. Um, one thing about the sc- scouting mission that kind of, like, stood out to me that I wrote down in my notes is this was actually pretty accurate in that like they portrayed like the Norwegian town and ways of life like in a Norwegian way uh, in that like there's one scene just prior to this scene where they're like making out in, in the cabin where they go into a church like all the church music is like very Norwegian church music church Christmas music they're singing in Norwegian um, I also noticed that like all the signs are either in German right because you know, Nazis or Norwegian like very accurate this is one one part where I was kind of like, all right, kudos. This this is one, you know, it might not, this movie might not be historically accurate, but it got that part right. Cool. Yeah, well, I mean, so far it's 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 not tracking perfectly. I mean, some of the characters are, are obviously different, but the, I think the main strokes of what's happening are, are there. Like the debate about whether or not um, uh, aerial bombing or commando raid was better in the movie the, that uh, Newt wants to do a, 
a commando raid. Kirk Douglas, uh, Rolf really wants to do a bombing run because he wants to kind of get this over with, basically, it seems like. But, you know, they're still trying to figure this out. And there's a really good debate here. You know, do you destroy this plant and prevent an atomic bomb uh, from getting into the hands of the Nazis, but then risk civilian deaths? Or is it more important to, to risk your own life? Uh, maybe the mission won't be successful, but there would be civilian you know, lives saved. They talked about, is this any different than the sneak attack from the beginning of the movie? They, they took out you know, a tank, but 15 civilians were killed. This is a, a lot of back and forth. Of course, they don't let Ula have an opinion on any of this. They keep telling her to shut up um, during this debate. The resistance fighters want to know why heavy water is so important. And, of, of course, uh, Kirk Douglas says it's classified. I want to know what's so important about heavy water. I don't make the rules. I can't tell you. I want to know, Doctor, and you're going to tell me. I'm telling you nothing. Do you think that I'm going to sacrifice the lives of 6,000 people on the opinion of a playboy scientist? I want to know, Doctor, and you're going to tell me. A lot of back and forth, but I really did enjoy that that particular scene. Yeah, and it's re- really interesting, though, too, is so when they're, we're having this discussion, right? Oh, do we do the bombing raid? We can potentially kill 6,000 civilians, right? The amount of people that live in with the Yukon if there was total devastation of the town um, versus, you know, beating the Nazis to a bomb, right? Preventing them from getting a bomb, winning the war, saving millions of lives. But like, in reality, that wasn't the calculation because we knew like, and th- in real life, the, they, the Operation Grouse, which was the scouting mission, figured out like a bombing raid would not have been effective. It wouldn't have stopped it. Even if they'd sent them in and they mm-hmm. kill 6,000 civilians, right? Because they bombed the crap out of the bus, it wouldn't have worked. Like you said, it was an actual fortress. So when they, this is, I'm getting a little bit of ahead of myself, but I'll kind of like sneak peek. When they actually did do a bombing raid of the fortress, it caused like exterior damage, but it didn't actually get into the nuts and bolts of the operation of the factory. So it would not have been effective. So in that calculation, like, yeah, you could kill a bunch of pit civilians and you still wouldn't achieve your goal. The only real way to achieve the goal of this mission was through sabotage. And that's why the British sent, in the movie, 50 commandos from the Royal Engineers. They get on a plane. Uh, they make their way to Telmark to assist with the the, the, the commando raid. Um, the crew, like, prepares at night, like, using fire to set up, like, a landing strip so that they could see where where to land at, at night. But something goes awry, right? They're, the plane, either because of wind or lack of visibility or fog, it crashes. And pretty much most of the people... Though these royal engineers, these British commandos, they they all get killed. So really, it's just left to the people that that, that we've been following for the movie, this much smaller group, to to lead this mission. And uh, while this is happening, uh, we meet Jensen, real creepy looking guy from the beginning. He looks like the guy at the beginning um, of. Have you ever seen the movie, the John Carpenter movie, The Thing? Uh, he's like Not. The, he's like like the guy in the helicopter who's like chasing and trying to shoot a dog, which turns out later to be an alien. Um, he has got like the goggles. He just has the the black uh, everything that he's wearing. He's he's clearly suspicious, but he says he's uh just you know a guy who's uh, skiing, and he you know his wife and family are been taken over by the Nazis. Why would he want to help them or anything? So they they say they're going to hold him. They take away his skis uh, until the mission is over. He said he said he was on a hunting trip, hunting dressed trip. all in black in the <laughs> snow. If you're on a hunting trip and you're in the snow, you wear white. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know what what blind animal he's he's trying to hunt, but it yeah, it doesn't. It does. It seems suspicious, and his name's Jensen, which is clearly a a suspicious name. It's bad news. Bad news. Yeah, is Jensen a common Norwegian name? 
It is, actually. Okay. All right. Sorry to all the Jensen's that listen, uh, but it's, it's, it's a sneaky-sounding name. So the plane crashes. They, they're left to really kind of do this on their own, but, you know, Rolf refuses to join. Kirk Douglas refuses to join because he thinks it's a suicide mission, even though he's the only person who knows where to actually put the dynamite. And, you know, there's a stirring speech. He joins back up. Everybody gets dressed up as British commandos. And this is part of what you mentioned earlier. It's so that if they do get caught, they will just be thought to be British commandos coming in. So therefore, it wouldn't be uh, any sort of civilian reprisals because it's not Norwegian resistance fighters. It's it's the British. I'm not too sure the Germans would split hairs there on that. But anyways, they, they, they tie up Jensen. They go on the mission. There's a, a long series of scenes of skiing and climbing and sneaking. But anyways, the crew gets in, they set the charges, and they blow up the machinery. And it looks like, you know, you would think that could be the end of the movie, right? But what happens? Well, I mean, they get the they get the plan back online, right? Like that's uh, that's that's the kicker. And this this is actually based based on real life too. Um, they got the, pl- the plant online uh, very quickly after it was initially destroyed. So then they had to figure out how to do it again. <laughs> An extraordinary job, one might say, of sabotage. How long will it take before production gets back into high gear again? A year at least. First, new containers have to be built. New store of heavy water accumulated before production flows at full speed. A year, he says. What do you think we Germans have been doing? Sleeping? Oh, the British fancy themselves very much after what they've done here. Winston Churchill is puffing an extra big cigar today. And we laugh at him. Why? Because all these containers, which the British did so much to destroy, have already been prefabricated in Berlin. They are already on their way here and will be installed by tomorrow. That is, I must say, that is fantastic efficiency. Don't you ever make the mistake of underrating the Germans. By Easter, we will have not merely 10,000 pounds of heavy water, but 12,000 pounds of heavy water. Because from now on, no one leaves this building, unless it's to go to Greeny Concentration Camp, but where I all suspect employees are being set. Protest as much as you wish. But get used to the idea. You built this place. Well, you will now work in it, Eat in it and sleep in it until our victory. Heil Hitler. And now, now the plan is they, the the German high command there really wants to hunt down the commando team. Um, they said if it turns out to be Norwegians, they want 100 civilians killed. And of course, Jensen, who after the mission was over, they probably gave him his skis back. He's He turns over information and the location of the crew in exchange for the release of his, I think his wife or his sister. Yeah, his his wife, who was a resistance fighter. So, like, you know, it's believable, but that's actually, like, not what happened. So, like, this character, Jensen, right, is based on a real-life character. Like, so during the actual, like, Rouse and Gunnerside mission, they did come across a Norwegian skier up in the mountains who was on a hunting trip. The same thing happened. They had a debate on whether or not to kill him. They ended up tying him up in this cabin. But then, you know, nothing happened. Like, he wasn't this, like, man dressed in black who had nefarious intentions. No, he was a Norwegian who hated the Nazis for occupying his country. Yeah, but they they played around with, with, with facts and they made it uh, more of a, a Hollywood drama. Mm-hmm. But then the scene, right, like where they literally, you know, create the, the Hollywood high-speed chase on skis. It's like <laughs> the Fast and the Furious ski edition didn't actually happen, but uh, it made for it. 
it's interesting film. <laughs> uh, you know, th- this time around watching the movie, I thought I was just going to skip through all the skiing parts because um, if if Gabe, my normal co-host uh, on the podcast, you know Gabe well, if he was on, he would wanted to, he would want to talk about the skiing because he loves skiing. Um, apparently, there's a type of of skiing technique called telemark. Um, yep. Yep. So he's he's he was going to talk about this for a couple of minutes. But it's not my favorite thing in the world because I, again, I'm not a skiing person. I'm more of a uh, a, a sled guy. Um, but it, it was uh, kind of interesting. I did stop it and actually rewind. It, they do some pretty good skiing adventure stuff here. They're, after this big chase, um, when the Germans try to go to the headquarters, well, Jensen points them, um, and they they're able to escape. Except uh, Kurt Douglas gets kind of shot in the leg, I believe, and he does yep. he does run across Jensen. He asks why Jensen describes why he did it why my wife your wife what the hell do you mean your wife i made a bargain with the nazis and kirk douglas is like no nah, that's not a good enough reason and then shoots him um and then yeah and then he gets ex- he escapes but he runs into some um to, to a german convoy again um they find out who he is uh, and that he wants to dis- that he was there to destroy the plant. I, it's a lot of like, I got caught. No, I didn't get caught. No, I got caught. No, I didn't get caught. But anyways, they they know who he is. They know that he's there. Uh, they know that there's resistance. People are trying to bomb the plant, but he still gets away. And and now we know the commando raid is over, and it's the bombers' turn to try. Uh, so there's actually a pretty good scene of the various uh, resistance fighters back in the cap, another cabin or somewhere else, just listening to the bombers incoming. And knowing that there are civilians being killed because their commando raid didn't completely stop it forever, uh, the heavy water production. They mentioned that 67 civilians were killed, uh, but no damage to the plant itself. According to the movie, at this stage, the Germans have decided that they're not going to deal with this uh, factory anymore. They're just going to take the water that they do have and put it on a ferry uh, across a lake to get to a, a rail train line and then bring the water back to Germany. So they come up with a plan here to to outsmart the Germans. They talked about there's going to be like several hundred troops guarding this train and there's no way to really get to it. But there's one point in this plan, right, during the supply chain uh, where it's, the water is going to be at risk. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and actually, there, there were a couple, but this is the one that they deemed like the most feasible to pull off, right? And so basically... In order to get it to Germany, it had to get from Vermark, like this fortress up in the mountains. So by rail down to like uh, Tunisia, um, where the rail cars would literally drive right onto a ferry and then would go by ferry across the lake and then on to Oslo and then, you know, by boat um, to Germany. But so that ferry um, where it went across after it had been on the rail from the factory and then on to, to also that's where um, they in real life and in the movie too um, decided that this is where we're going to go after it. We're going to blow up um, the ferry at the deepest point uh, of the lake so that the heavy water cannot possibly be recovered. And so they, they timed it so that the bomb would blow up um, when it was at about 300 meters depth. Mm, apparently the thought there was like, it was far enough away from shore, deep, deep water, as you mentioned, but also close enough that people could maybe be rescued. Uh, Cause yeah. this was not just going to be, it was kind of really interesting. I, I don't know if this was intentional from the German sides to 
reduce the incentive of it being something that the resistance fighters would want to bomb. But there were people on the ferry, you know, throughout this process. They were not just, you know, German military people and, and um, troops and the rail car and all of that. There were actually uh, civilians. There's a, a, a running subplot of the movie of a, a woman who is uh, pregnant and then, but her husband is in, in, in Britain as part of this mission and he gets killed uh, in one of the, when the plane crashes uh, earlier in the movie, but she still, she gives birth to her child and she's with the child on the ferry. So Kirk Douglas runs on board, tries to get as many people off the boat as possible. Uh, it's a pretty in- intense scene. It's one of those great things where, uh, what's his name? Hitchcock uh, always used to say for his movies that if you just have a bomb that might go off at some point and you don't know um, as, a, as someone watching, it's not that suspenseful. But if you show the bomb early and the characters don't know that the bomb's there and it's ticking time bomb, it's really suspenseful because you know something that the characters don't know. They do a really good job with this in this movie with the with everything. But anyways, the, the resistance crew, they plant the bombs, they get aboard the ferry they do their best to get people and the kids to the back of the boat with life jackets and, and, and rescue boats and all of that. And the mission more or less goes as they intended. Uh, there were certainly a number of civilians you know, killed in, in real life and in the movie, but I think that's really where the movie ends, right? Is the, the boat sinking you know, down to the bottom and as well you know, with the heavy water down to the bottom of the, of the fjord. Movie end. It was a quick, you know, pretty quick ending, but it's. I think it was a nice last shot of the 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 boat and people kind of getting rescued and stuff. But it looked really like a beautiful shot. This wasn't a Hollywood movie in that it like it wasn't made in Hollywood. It was made in the United Kingdom, and I'm wondering if they actually went on location for some of this because like back in. So I remember in the '90s, the Norwegian government made a concerted push to kind of bring like to create tax incentives for Mm. big movie companies to come to Norway to kind of uh, boost the a the village visibility of Norway as a tourist um, attraction, but also to kind of give the the local movie industry kind of kind of a boost here. And I wouldn't have been surprised in 1960 if the Norwegian government was like, oh, no, you guys come here, do this on site. I think it was I think it was filmed mostly in Norway and maybe not at the same places, but but film mostly mostly in Norway. Making movies in cities gets really complex, right? Because you got to shut down like intersections, block traffic, you know, do all these things. It gets very intrusive. But Ryukon is a small town hmm. in Norway. Like that would have been zero problem. Getting extras would have been no problem. Um, so I would not be surprised if that was the case. Uh, do you have any? Have you ever been to this part of part of uh, Norway before? No, I haven't. Um, but it is on like my my list of places to go. Going to Ryukon is actually like it's it's become kind of like a tourist attraction. Hmm. They kept a lot of this stuff intact. They have ferries that are exact replicas of the that like are still operational. That, oh wow! That work. Well, keep keep your ear out if you hear any sort of like ticking clock while you're there. Um, so if anyone maybe is actually on their way, you know, driving from Oslo or on a a, a, a ferry or a boat on their way to the plant to kind of visit it. Uh, let's let's keep the conversation going, make it interesting for them on their trip over. So let's get let's get super critical. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the nuke stuff that's in here. I think it's super interesting that the movie doesn't really delve all that much into the science behind either nuclear weapons or heavy water is used in science of of atomic energy. Uh, the Germans are going to build some sort of weapon with it. There's some discussions about a bomb, but they don't really get into it because it's at this stage either it's secret in being done by the British and, and U.S. scientists, you know, through the Manhattan Project, or it's something that maybe people have read in a couple journals before 
there was a big uh, censorship movement, you know, for people to be like, guys, stop talking about this uh, in, in public. The Germans are going to figure this out. The Germans are reading all the same stuff that everybody else is. They don't really get into it too much. There isn't like discussions about what kind of the bombs can do because at this stage it's so nascent. It's, it's very, it's very new. I, I just found that kind of interesting there. Before we kind of get into the, the nuke discussions, it's a movie about an, a sabotage operation to destroy a nuclear bomb path, but they don't have to get into it as much because I think the story itself, even separate from the bomb, whatever this place was that they were trying to destroy as part of a supply line, it's it's fascinating story on its own without having to get into sort of atomic element to it, right? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And uh, it, it is ironic that they didn't get a lot into the science because, you know, this this imaginary playboy scientist is a freaking scientist, right? Yeah. Like they, <laughs> they, get, they don't go into that aspect of it all. You know, if you, if you look at this this book that uh, you and I have mentioned a couple times now, The Winter Fortress, they really do get into the nitty gritty of like what the status of the German nuclear program was, what the Americans and what the Allies thought um, the status of the program was, where they were weighing up, you know, how to cut off. It wasn't necessarily about cutting off pathways, but like a potential pathway, right? Like right. we know that the Germans might be working on this. And if they are in fact ahead of us, like the the stakes are so high and like would be so catastrophic that you have to do something about it, right? Cool. Um, but it it is interesting that they they really didn't touch on this subject all that much. So for this for this new discussion, I think we're going to talk about three things. One, uh, you're gonna I, I really want to get your thoughts on you know how close this this you know hewed to reality in terms of what the movie was described. So in terms of the commando mission, um, I will talk about a little bit the. A German bomb project, you know, what was thought of at the time, um, why this was seemed to be so important and so timely versus what we knew uh, now and also a little bit uh, new immediately after uh, the end of World War II. And then we can also chat a bit um, about how this movie compares to this local production uh, called The Heavy Water War, uh, which is, you know, done in Norway, which you can, you can watch on Amazon Prime. I think you have to get a fancy subscription to it. Sometimes it's on uh, Netflix here and there. Uh, but that's a it's something else that's that's available for people. Uh, so, Will, why don't you uh, get into this here? Because I I love this quote here from um, one of the people who was the second in command of the operation, um, who's a real person, has the same first name as one of the guys in the movie, but he's maybe more like a, an analog, similar character. You want to read this quote here from this gentleman who whose first name is is Newt. I hear they are spending five million dollars, so it's got to be spectacular. And that means more fiction and less fun. <laughs> excellent, excellent. That, that was my best Norwegian-American accent. It's not bad. Uh, Newt. Uh, Hoglum. Excellent. Well, yeah, this is a, it's a good setup for this part. So let's delve into it. We'll talk about uh, the real cast of characters that we had here um, involved in this really big operation. It certainly was not just you know one in-and-out nighttime raid. It, it had a lot of activity over several months. Not even a month. I think it was like well over a year it took to, to plan this all out. Um, mm. And it's just, it's it's a fascinating story. And, you know, I, I give the movie credit to getting kind of the gist of it right. You know, like from beginning to end, it's it gets it accurate. But like when I was talking about, so for me, and this is probably more pronounced as a Norwegian, right? But like, really, I got annoyed by the fact that they didn't use like the real people's names, like when they had the opportunity to do so, right? So uh, let's start with Kirk Douglas's character because he is the main character, right? So uh, Rolf Pedersen, he is in real life, uh, Leif Tunstad. Like that is the character that he's supposed to be. So he was a Norwegian 
scientist who figured out what the Germans were up to because he got the so he got the um, intel from the director of the factory and he's actually the, the same name um, of, of the guy in the movie um, versus um, reality. Life Twinson is the guy that gets the information, blows a flag, goes over to England, has this meeting and says, we, we need to do something about this. And uh, then they, they go end up going with the sabotage option. And he becomes the leader of Kumpanilinga, which is a very famous, it's kind of like the U.S. Navy SEALs. Right. Like they were they were like the core elite resistance fighters during during World War Two. Like you, there were lots of divisions of uh, re- Norwegian resistance fighters. Kumpani Lenga was where it was at. Hmm. Really, really getting the big operations done. Leif Tunstad is Kirk Douglas. And then this uh, team of commandos he put together. It's actually two teams in real life. So it was Operation Grouse and Operation Gunnerside. So Operation Grouse was... What in the movie in Heroes of Telemark was like this two minute scene of them going and scouting out the Yukon and figuring it out. That was actually almost a year long operation. So Operation Grouse, um, they Americanized the name, but I'm, I'm assuming that Grouse is a reference to Ripa, which is a Norwegian bird that mm. lives uh, on the Vinda where this was all taking place. And it changes its feathers in the winter to white. So it's invisible. So it's perfect for being invisible and scouting. So Operation Grouse was about getting up into Vinda, up over Yukon and spying on the factory, monitoring the troop movements, being able to see, get a sense of the infrastructure, knowing what um, the guard patrol situation is like, right? And really evaluating. So that consisted of teams of people actually doing the spying and a radio operator that could then communicate um, back to the UK. And that was Knut Hegelon. So I'll just go into this because this is kind of important to me. Yeah, go for it. The people who were part of this. But yeah, so Leif Kunstad was the actual Norwegian scientist, the real Kirk Douglas. Uh, Operation Grouse was led by Jans Anton Persson, Knut Hegelon, Klaus Halberg, Arne Schallerup, and Einar Skinnelon. The, so Einar, um, I saw he was recruited by the British, someone who actually worked at the dam, either either at the dam or at a dam nearby. So he came by and actually provided a great amount of intel, it seemed like, for this operation. He almost seemed like one of the, a close, close analog to this. He was an engineer who worked at the plant, and he was one of the people who actually, I think he went back to the UK, then he got 10 days of really intense like commando training and then parachuted back into Norway. So quite a quite a badass here. Yeah. I wonder if they changed names because in one of those scenes of the movie as we talked about, uh I don't think um the main real guy, I know I know he he's got a tragic end to his life here uh life, but uh he probably his family maybe didn't want to see Kirk Douglas like what he did to his ex-wife in the movie. Maybe some of those things they do and they change so they don't get sued. But I'm glad you're bringing in some of the real life people that, that were involved in this. Uh, but what about Operation Gunnerside? Yeah, so Operation Gunnerside, that was the other part part of this operation. So Operation Gunnerside, I mean, 
right? So Grouse, the spy mission, uh, and Gunner's side was the Gunner mission. Like, they were the guys who were supposed to go in and blow up the factory. It was actually more than just the people that I'm going to be listing here, right? So Joachim Rundeberg is the guy who led the raid, um, and he actually just died, like, yeah. two years ago, pr- pretty recently. I'll post in the show notes um, some great interviews that he uh, did before he passed away. Yeah, great research. Uh, Knut Hogelid was his second-in-command. Berger Sternsheim, Frederick Kaiser, Kaspar Edland, Hans Thurhoek. So what actually happened was Operation Grouse, these guys were up in the mountains, up in Vidda for almost a year. And like you referenced, like this is one of the harshest environments on Earth, like in the winter. It is really, really hard to survive there. And it's almost a shame that they didn't get into this. But I mean, these people almost froze to death and starved to death up there when they, when they were, were doing this mission. A lot of it had to do with the difficulty of getting supplies into them, airdrop. This was... World War II, this isn't an air, like GPS was not a thing, right? So basically like planes that were coming into airdrop supplies and dropped them down uh, via parachute, they were depending on, it was kind of a paradox because they were depending on clear skies, right? And Hmm. good weather to be able to do this and to see their target and to accurately drop down the supplies. But if they did that, they were flying over hostile territory right. and would get shot down right they, they were exposing themselves to enemy air, air anti-aircraft fire but if it was cloudy and at night they would they would miss their target by hundreds of miles they might actually you know accidentally drop the supplies into a lake <laughs> where they couldn't be recovered you know so th- this kind of stuff actually did happen to these guys which is why it's not all that you know surprising that uh, one of the operations that ha- took place between grouse and Gunnerside. Operation Freshman, this is what the British paratroopers were supposed to meet up with the guys from uh, Operation Grouse and then kind of head closer to, to the plant. These were two military gliders that were supposed to land, but they crashed. I think it was a combination of fog and another kind of bad weather. Either they died in the crash or they were captured, interrogated, and then executed by the Gestapo. So you're right. I mean, like, not only supplies, but literally it's like a part of the operation, knowing that this was supposed to take place. Uh, didn't really come to come to the plan that they had exactly so but but so kind of like so that i mean that's how it went so like the first phase was sending in operation grouse and then operation freshman was supposed to come in they were supposed to um so these gliders came in that were towed by a large british aircraft and they were supposed to like unhook like when they got over the landing strip and then the gliders would come in and drop off the troops and the gear and everything and like you said uh, that ended in in tragedy every one of the british commandos died um there were three royal air force pilots that survived because one of the gliders like broke off crashed into the sea and the airplane actually got back to, to England. The other one crashed into a mountain in Norway. The glider crashed. And like you said, um, they were picked up by the Germans, interrogated and tortured and, and died pretty gruesomely. But then, so, okay, so Operation Grouse is there. They kind of see this go down. In the, like in the movie. That was a crazy scene in the movie. Yeah, they see this go down. They're like, what are we going to do? And um, back in the United Kingdom, the, the Norwegian resistance movie said, okay, we're, we're going to send in um, the good old boys. Like we're sending in Norwegians to get this done. And so that is what Operation Gunnerside was. They were the Norwegians that were following up on Operation Freshman. So they met up with Grouse. And so even though there were only seven members technically of Operation Gunnerside, I think they two or three members from Grouse ended up going into the factory with them. Hmm. Um, so the actual sabotage mission was a little bit bigger than Gunnerside and, and smaller and grouse as well. It's fascinating. So another thing, but you know, so they, they go in, they blow up the factory once in the movie. They had to do it 
twice yeah. in, in real life. They did it twice, right? So they go in, they blow it up. Not a single shot is fired. Um, in the movie, they kind of had this like, oh, the Nazis like are, are shooting at them afterwards. Didn't happen. Um, uh, apparently they thought, the Germans thought it was landmines being set off by something. And they're like, oh, you know, just, just some of the landmines we set up. It, they didn't even realize that the bombs were going off. Yeah, they thought there was rabbits or deer that had like triggered the landmines or something. It was it was or, buried yeah. into a mountain. That's why it was uh, both. It's why you couldn't you know hear what was going on. It's like trying to say like, you know, I, when I'm up on my third floor in my house, I don't hear what's going on in the basement. What when, when there's uh, you know whoever's watching TV in the basement or anything. Yeah, and another thing uh, that I thought was really cool that they did well in the movie. So. In when I was reading about the actual raid, you know, like there was this huge dilemma. Like, I mean, we can't cross the bridge to get to the factory, right? Because it's it's heavily guarded. They there would be like sitting ducks. So what they did was they scaled down the ravine and uh, you know to and then up the ravine on the other side, and that was like considered impossible. The Germans weren't looking there because yeah. they were. Like, that's that's crazy. Nobody can do that. And these guys did it. It's like five hundred feet um, steep. Pretty crazy. Yeah, and and they depicted that in the movie. Kudos to them. That, that that was a big challenge that these guys had to to overcome. But yeah, right. So in real life, that happened. They go in the first time, they blow it up. Germans get it back online, uh, increase security, and they're like, "Oh well, I guess we're just gonna have to go and do it all over again." <laughs> Which they did. They they did. Despite the heightened security, they get in there. They plant more C four. And actually, that was another thing that I thought was really realistically depicted was the c4 yeah like you know i was worried that they would have like the stereotypical like the dynamite block strapped together with a stopwatch on it uh no like c4 like in large like tubes it's kind of like it's play-doh right yeah. like essentially um that that i thought that was cool that was a, that was a nifty detail that they threw in there and it looked silly later on in the movie when they were destroying the um the the ferry because it had like literally it looked like dynamite but with like a, an alarm clock <laughs> But that was what they did, you know. That was they 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 literally experimented with it because that's the parts that they had, and 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 it worked. Um, but you know, despite these two commando missions, they still feel like they had to because the plant got back up online. They had to do some some daylight bombing raids. Uh, it's pretty amazing the 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 amount of um, you know sorties and stuff that they ran here. The the stuff that I saw, 143 B17 heavy bombers dropped over 700 bombs apparently like you mentioned destroyed the facade quite a bit but at least 600 of those 700 bombs missed the plant um pretty bad you know they right what the you know high altitude uh lots of uh wind and and various uh wires you mentioned that they put together i see your notes here they they put lots of uh wires to prevent bombing runs so like things crashed or the bombs exploded before they needed their target it was definitely a fortress yeah, and, and that's exactly right. Like the, the Nazis knew that um, a bombing run from low altitude could be a risk. That's why they put the, the wires like all over the gorge. The resistance, you know, they, they the Americans, resistance fighters knew this. That's why they had to do a high altitude run. Um, and, you know, that just, your actually plummets, you know, um, when, when you have to go to a high altitude bombing raid, which is why like a lot of, like, you know, um, I don't, What's the percentage there? 711 bombs, 600. So 111 bombs supposedly hit their target or at least got close to it, right? Yeah, um, yeah it's um, it's not great. And uh, yeah, it, it didn't really do much to deter, uh, to, to hinder additional operations. Um, 
but I guess at some point the Germans decided they were tired of being bombed and tired of these successful commando raids. So they, they did decide to put the uh, the heavy water that they had um, onto onto the uh, a ferry. And that as you know, pretty I think it's pretty close to the way it's described in the movie. Um, in terms of what what really happened, there were civilian casualties. I think they said about uh, eighteen people were killed, twenty nine survived. The dead had fourteen uh, Norwegian crew and I think four German soldiers. And it you know it got the heavy water to the bottom of the, of the lake. They in two thousand five there was an expedition to go and and see what was maybe left, and they did retrieve a barrel, um, barrel number twenty six, and they got it. They did some analysis on it, and according to the records that um, it was actually part of the shipment, but the concentration of heavy water in the barrels apparently was still too small to be much of use in any sort of uh, nu- nuclear reactor or bomb project. Some s- historians have said maybe that's why there weren't people looking for bombs on the ferry because they were getting the water out. It was like, well, let's just get out what we got. Maybe we'll do some more work with it later. But they didn't see at that particular thing. But just, but no one knows that when you're in the middle of trying to plan an operation like this, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. No. So, like you said, I think this, the the whole like the ferry it wasn't a scene. It was a lot of scenes, right? But the whole ser- ferry section was very accurate to what actually happened. I mean, the one thing that obviously didn't happen was, uh, you know, uh, no resistance fighter like snuck back onto the ferry to try to <laughs> like you know get Sigrid and her pregnant yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and her, and her baby off. Um, no, they just. They blew it up, man. You know, th- like you said, they planned it so that it was at a point where the ferry was at like the maximum depth and closest to the shore. Like that ratio uh, was the optimum in- to ensure survivors. No Norwegian resistance fighter snuck onto a ferry that they just like laced with explosives. Um, nope. Yeah. <laughs> nope. The-, the only other detail I wanted to add on here that I thought was really interesting that um, the Norwegian miniseries gets into is that. At the early part of this process, when the Norwegians started to figure out, well, you know, why was the Germans ordering so much heavy water? Because at first it was just the the Germans were wanting to buy it. They like, can you stop making what you're making and just sell me more heavy water? And the plant manager was like, sure, that sounds great. Like, you want to give us this much money? No problem. But then, you know, the, through some spy operations and other stuff, the word got back to the Allies and the French came in without really telling them why, said can we buy it from you? We'll double or, you know, pay more than whatever the Germans did. So at least the water that they currently had before the Germans started to place their order, all of that got shipped secretly through the, at night uh, to the French. The French jumped right in and, uh, and were able to get it before all this stuff happens, which really pissed off the Germans uh, quite a bit that they were there. And then that really started a lot of this much more intense security um, on the, the fortress and everything. I just thought that would have been a cool, a cool scene to include in the movie. But they had enough people. They had enough British and Americans and, and Norwegians. They didn't want to introduce the French into this movie as well. Right. And so what's interesting, though, so this saga that you're just describing, it started prior to the occupation of Norway. Like, the Germans were buying heavy yeah. water from Nostkidro, like, as a private enterprise, right? Like, before they occupied Norway. Then they occupied Norway... <laughs> Then they took over the factory and said, okay, you're just going to give it to us. You're going to do what we want. A lot of people that talk about this raid, like refer to it as like the heavy water factory, as in like, that's what they made, like heavy water. No, 
heavy water was a byproduct product of this very large and strategically important just hydroelectric dam. It produced a lot of electricity <laughs> for, for Norway. Heavy water was something that they started experimenting with as uh, it had utility in the production of fertilizers, I think. Yeah, ammonia. They even, mm-hmm. Yeah, like so after you placed the turbo and uh, mentioned this, there's like, you know, forget, forget about your fertilizer. You are going to make more heavy water for us, you know? It's, uh, it, so Norwegians, like most people didn't think of its potential application in, in nuclear weapons until, like you said, right, they had this kind of like powwow where they brought in expert opinions from Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein and said, oh, no, this is probably what the Nazis are up to. We should, we should do something about this. And let, let's get into that now. Let's talk about uh, how far along were the Germans in terms of building an atomic bomb and how important heavy water was, you know, to the process. Um, people who have listened to previous episodes of the podcast uh, will hear me repeat a few things because I think the story is is interesting to cover in the different contexts of what one thing sh- describes it and what another. Like in the TV show The Man in the High Castle, the Amazon show about a counter history of Germany and Japan won World War II. I talk about this in, when we cover that episode. In in the Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever is about a potential alternate history where Captain Kirk accidentally saves a woman who was supposed to die uh, when they went back in time, is a peace person, and then brings the United States, keeps them out of World War II uh, for a certain amount of time, which then allows the Germans to build an atomic bomb. All this stuff. So we talk about it in these episodes, but I think it's worth talking about again. And also in the context of the film, because every one of these portrays these stories a little bit differently. So I think the movie is, is really, it's right to portray the heroic attempts, you know, by the, the, the allied resistance fighters, particularly the Norwegians, to cut off this kind of key supply. Uh, but it's worth noting that, you know, while the movie might be implying that Germany was really close to developing an atomic bomb, uh, we know now that it probably wasn't really that close. But the impression for the people at the time was that, you know, that makes total sense. The German nuclear program was was run by this uh, physicist named Kurt Deibner. Uh, he was a physicist. He had a little bit of information about uh, uranium. You know, had a little bit of a head start than other people. You know, he starts talking about what the, the, the why this bomb project was so important. He's a main character in the Norwegian miniseries. Nuclear fission itself was invented by a German a chemist, uh, Otto Hahn, in 1938, and one of the main you know, just right right off of winning the Nobel Prize, new world-leading theoretical physicist Werner Heisenberg, you know, he was heavily involved and recruited uh, by Kurt Deibner uh, to come to the project. People may know him, Heisenberg Principle of Uncertainty, Quantum Mechanics. He was also the inspiration for the drug kingpin character, uh, Walter Wright in Breaking Bad, calling himself Heisenberg. Um, he was heavily involved in the, in the German bomb project. He was recruited you know, to join this project. Obviously, the idea was Germany must be so far ahead. They're they're talking about heavy water. We haven't even thought about that as something that we could use in this process. But um, the risk of, of Hitler getting an atomic bomb was obviously too big, you know, to pursue. But right, Will, I mean, like historians and other experts, they really, these days, dispute how close uh, Germany was to building an atomic bomb. You want to talk about some of the difficulties that they had and trying, like, why that project was a little bit slow? Yeah, sure. So it's very, uh, the parallel to what's going on in today's society, especially with, like, anti-vaxxing and, like, the, the rise of conspiracy theories. Hmm. Uh, the Allies kind of fell into the same trap uh, yeah. back then. Conspiracy theorists see conspiracy theories everywhere, right? They're like, oh, this is a nefarious plot by the government. They are, you know, like effective and great. Like usually that's not the case, right? You, I think you and I both know like what is 
attempted to be explained through a conspiracy theory is usually just ineffectiveness. So this was a little bit of the problem, right? The Allies assumed that the Germans were really on top of this, that they were efficient and they were on their game, and that wasn't the case. Um, so the Winter Fortress does a really good job of getting into the details of what was going on in the German program. But essentially, um, there was infighting. There were competing factions yep. in the German scientific community that um, create that created this slowdown. Um, and to be right, so kind of the explanation for this is, you know, like Germany is fighting a world war. Um, they have finite resources and they have to choose what they're going to prioritize, what's going to be most effective and what's going to help them win the war. The prospect of an atomic bomb, right? It was it was a clear, obvious, like if we get it, we're going to win. But they were like, what do we invest in for the best short-term effect, right? Would it be like the V2 rocket program? So they invested a lot of resources into getting V2 rockets perfected to help them win the war in a more localized fashion. At the same time, they put resources towards their atomic bomb program. But even within the atomic bomb program, there were competing programs, right? Yep, yep. So Kirk Diener was the heavy water guy. Uh, Heisenberg was like, no, no, no graphite like so there were like competing kind of reactor designs that were going on and and sucking down resources so at one point Kirk Diebner was getting a lot of resources into his program then the Reich was like no we're going to start investing more in, in Heisenberg's um, ideas right so it was this co competing infighting that that created the big slowdown but you know from the Allies perspective they didn't have perfect information they didn't know what was going on Yep. So from their perspective, it was about risk management. How do you minimize the threat? And the threat of the Nazis, if they were in fact ahead, and if they would have gotten an atomic bomb um, before the Allies, it would have been game over, war over. In, in addition to all of that, like the Germans really shot themselves in, in their foot with the Ruger uh, here because a lot of the really groundbreaking work done in theoretical physics um, they just thought, well, that's something that Jewish scientists were doing. Um, yeah, we've got a Nobel Prize winner, but he's too even close himself to all of the, all, all these Jewish people. He was quoting Albert Einstein way too many times. We don't do that. Why are you doing that? So while they thought it was you know something that could be possible, they didn't have a lot of the people who were the leaders on all of this stuff. And a lot of these you know scientists, many of who were either Jewish or were at risk of you know what the Nazis were trying to do in Europe, they fled. Italy, they fled Germany, and they started working for the Americans or the British. Really hurt themselves with like what kind of expertise you know they could get on there. I think this is really perfectly aligns to what you were saying. You know, they they didn't put enough money into the uranium development project. A lot of it was done in the university labs and not really for scale projects. The U.S. when they would do it at university labs, they would devote tons of resources to getting this thing done. You know, a lot of this was done at the University of Chicago and Berkeley and others, but they were really just almost military projects by themselves at that point, And then everything got moved, you know, to Oak Ridge or to uh, Los Alamos. But here's a great st statistic for this. At its peak, a hundred people were employed in the Nazi atomic bomb effort in the United States, uh, which was, you know, really was a joint U.S.-British operation. But in the U.S., 250,000 people were involved. Yeah. That tells you uh, quite a bit about the scale here. And there was even just like stupid snafu things. You know, we talk about when you and I used to work together, uh, how hard it is to schedule meetings and getting on people's calendars and Zoom and all of that. 
you know, this even happened in the German you know, bomb project. Some of the researchers involved wanted to organize a presentation, a PowerPoint maybe or something. Uh, probably back in the days, it was more like those ink uh, transparency projectors, right? They wanted to talk about the potentials for nuclear science to Nazi leadership and its potential bomb implications and things like that. So the secretary sent out a number of invitations to the various key people for this meeting, but they sent the wrong program information, the wrong invite details. So everybody that got this looked at this and said, I'm not going to this boring meeting, this boring lecture. So no one showed up to this meeting. And of course, at the meeting, Heisenberg talked about the potential military applications of nuclear power. He did get some people interested. Then those people contacted Albert Speer, uh, who was one of Hitler's close advisors. He was in the, the Minister of Armaments and War Production. So he, they started to chat. And according to Richard Rhodes, a great historian on all of these nuke topics, uh, one of Spears' deputies asked Heisenberg, well, how big would a bomb like have to be to destroy a city with this atomic science? And Heisenberg said, meh, you know, about the size of a pineapple. So that obviously got them a little bit interested. And then, but still, that stuff you talked about, they didn't have enough resources because they were fighting on two fronts. There was a lack of enthusiasm with the bomb project. They thought, yeah, we might be able to do it, but the war would be over by the time this would ever actually be, you know, done. Speer didn't think that Hitler ever really understood what the bomb could be. He's quoted as saying later on that the idea quite obviously strained Hitler's intellectual capacity. And he was unable to grasp the revolutionary nature of nuclear physics. At this stage, they thought they could build something, but it would take way too long. A lot of these other kind of projects started to happen. One of the other interesting things is that there was a memo that some of the Manhattan Project scientists saw in 1943. They warned that the Germans were doing some, you know, because of newspapers and secret service and other kinds of stuff. They thought they were in possession of this real amazing powerful new weapon and it was going to come you know this is august of 1943 it was going to come on board and be deployed in november and january and they thought oh this is it they've got the gadget the atomic bomb they're ready to start to do this we need to up our operation but it turns out as as you mentioned earlier it was a, it was the v2 v1 rockets uh it wasn't an atomic bomb so still pretty scary but anyway so this was this misinformation that they were working with here's where we really got a clear clear sense of this there was an espionage operation near the end of world war 2 it was in 1944 it was called Operation uh, Oslos. What was done was to find out how advanced Germany was in its bomb project. And they learned pretty quickly that they had made really limited progress. They had a wine cellar where they were hiding out, trying to make a nuclear reactor. They couldn't get the thing operating all that well. Then when the Germans surrendered or they started capturing German scientists when the war, when the war was nearing its end, they were bringing, they would put them into a room. And then they would record their conversations. And then it's particularly after the U.S. dropped the bombs on, on Japan, they would like give them the news reports. And then the Germans would start talking about it, how far along they were. And they would record it and all of that stuff. And it, it turns out like they were all like, whoa, geez, we had no idea uh, you could even do this. It was really quite a fascinating you know, thing here. Of course, a lot of this is, is after the fact. You know, Heisenberg said they never really wanted to build a bomb. They, they claimed later that they were trying to sabotage Hitler's bomb project they, they, or falsifying their studies. It's a whole thing. It, it, even at a certain point, one of the, the German scientists said that the Germans were working on building peaceful nuclear power, a uranium engine. Well, that's what we were working on while the Americans and the, the British built this ghastly weapon of war. So there's a lot of debate about what, how far along were they? Were they ever going to build one? But I think the, the key thing is that like, it was a combination of like bureaucracy problems, 
Um, they weren't collaborative as much as the U.S. and the British were. And really, all of these things, interpersonal disputes, lack of resources, beyond just even heavy water, really meant they couldn't really get this going. Which is why, you know, today, when they talked about, you know, vaccines, we need a Manhattan Project to make vaccines. There's a reason we use that term over and over again. It's because Manhattan Project, if anything, was an, an engineering and human collaborative effort to get all this stuff going more than even potentially a scientific one. And the German mil- military and, and, and scientists, and they couldn't figure this out. But It's funny, right? Because you've got like for idioms, like popular phrases that you use for like some massive effort that the American government is about to make. It's either going to be a moonshot yeah. or a Manhattan Project. Right. Yeah. One of these days we're going to uh, have a Manhattan Project to shoot the moon with nukes uh, and then we'll all, <laughs> it'll all come together. Um, I'm pretty sure there's already, there, there at least have been plans. Yeah, yeah. We're working on it. So um, the last thing I want to talk about here is the comparison to this Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation show that came out in 2015. I know you've been wanting me to watch this for a really long time. Uh, I watched the first and last episode. It's, I think there's seven or five. I forget how many there are, but they're, it's pretty good. called The Heavy Water War. Well, I love that title. Much better than Heroes of Telmark. It does remind me of the Dr. Seuss book that we've covered on the podcast, which is about nuclear weapons in a weird way called The Butter Battle Book. So The Heavy Water War really much more focuses on the character you talked about, the, the scientist and military intelligence officer, uh, Leif uh, Tronstadt. He's not even in Heroes of Telmark, uh, but, you know, I guess he's the analog, right? The Kirk Douglas character. Yeah, he, he's Kirk Douglas, basically, yeah. His name's not in there, but he's, he's, he's a key character in, in the TV show. It also has a lot of scenes, you know, about half the show really is, is about um, Heisenberg and, um, and Daber and all the others that were involved in this. They talk about some of those, the meeting that we talked about that, that eventually... Albert Speer was able to show up for. They go through a lot of that. It's it's really, I think that's a cool thing. And they really do a good job, I think, of showing how much this war operation, just as successful as it was, the, the how it's stressful, how long, how hard it was to do in terms of being out in the snow and everything, and the, the number of civilians that were killed, and how that just wore on these people uh, over a period of time. And it, it's a, I think it's a good character study of the show. I think it does a little bit of fan um, support of Heisenberg a little bit more than I think I would have thought um, initially, but it does a good, it's good. I think I'd recommend it. Have you, have you seen it yet or have you like, kind of working through it? Uh, I'm working through it. So I have not, I've not seen it yet, but I'm excited to, cause you know, um, it was just, yeah, it was interesting to watch like this, you know, here was a telemark and be like, okay, yeah, well, you know, you could have used some like names here. Well, like focus more on this. Don't make up a love story. Like, you know, um, yep. but yeah, no, I, I, so I'm, I'm excited to see how they managed to, you know, dramatize the story. Uh, and in a mini series, I think you have a lot more room to capture the detail uh, and the story. There's still a lot of skiing. So don't worry about that. If you're worried, Will, that there <laughs> wasn't enough skiing, there is a lot of skiing in the in the miniseries. So it's great. And there, there was a lot of skiing in real life. Like I said, like these guys were stuck up on Vinda for like a year. Yeah. Um, and actually kind of going back to the skiing in, in real life, right? So that that like, you know, dramatic kind of like, uh, you know, shoot out on skis that is happens in the movie. 
So there wasn't anything like it wasn't exactly like that, but there was actually a ski shootout that happened like in in real life, and it's where so like after uh, after the raid has has happened and they're trying to escape to Sweden, they did split up, right? So it, in the movie, you know, it's it's Kirk Douglas and Knut Strand are, are you know together. The others have kind of like split up, and they're they get cornered by like what like three hundred Nazis on skis or something. Right. It wasn't that. Uh, it was a small patrol, but like Nazis did spot some of the, the resistance fighters and two um two nazis that were great skiers like go after this guy and basically what happened he just like kind of like out skied them to the point where like he would let them get close enough they would like bam 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 fire off some shots but they they weren't close enough to actually like hit him um they used up all their bullets he turned around and shot him <laughs> that's 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 how it went down. So it was kind of neat that they incorporated that in, in, in into this movie, but like it was nothing near as, as dramatic as as what they portrayed. But you know, it was cool. It's really sad to read about the tragic end of, of Leaf because he kept um, being involved in, in various operations. He was someone that they wouldn't let him go back to Norway for the, like the longest time. Um, they kept saying, "You're too you're too important for this project. You can leave the operation from from the from Britain." But eventually, he did get to go back to Norway because he had family he wanted to go back to he wanted to be involved uh, on the ground and he led some successful operations but I think at one point he had captured someone and was interrogating them uh, back at a cabin but someone saw their ski tracks and followed them and ambushed and was able to rescue their the German uh, colleague back and at that point um the, i think leaf was shot and killed kind of buried nearby so they, they found you know they found his body he's there's obviously he's a, he's a national hero for the work that he's done but uh it's a real kind of sad end to this because despite the fact that he was involved and as much as this operation you know was successful you know he still kept going he, there was no like happy ending for him at the very end of this uh so let's move off of the, the nuke discussion and just do a quick what i call parking lot movie discussion now that COVID is, uh, at least in the United States, starting to allow people to go back to movie theaters, this is when when I was a little kid uh, growing up, uh, we would, I guess not a little kid, when I was in high school uh, growing up, we would go to a movie and then hang out in the parking lot before we left and go our separate ways. We would talk about the film. Non-nuke stuff. How well does this movie portray life in, in 1940s Norway? You talked about a lot of the accurate things that were in this film anything remind you any kind of more anything else you wanted to add to that See, i'd say it was it was probably pretty accurate of, of 1940s norway you know like it, the like, like we were talking about right they probably shot a lot of the scenes actually in norway um certainly like occupied norway like they had a scene at the very beginning of the movie right like at the university of oslo mm-hmm. um where before they kind of like uh, switch to the shot of inside the building they get outside there's nazis parading in the street and playing music like that happened yeah. like that that was uh, optically um very the feel of of oslo at, at the time like i said you know like they did a good job with the signage they were speaking norwegian you know like when they were singing like in, in the churches and stuff one of the scenes that so th- this is a very unique part of norwegian culture so norwegians love lunch packets <laughs> All right. So like we, we don't eat lunch at food trucks and stuff, you know, like that. that's not a part of like Nor- Norwegians wrap three to four sandwiches like with with toppings. And they're they're not like double. They're open face. Mm-hmm. And we put little pieces of paper like between them and, and wrap them up and you, you take them to work. That's just like an ingrained part of Norwegian culture. And there was a scene in the movie 
where they're on the ferry, right? Like Seagate has sat down with her newborn baby and Kirk Douglas is like, yo, come on, like Seagate, I gotta get out of here. I need to talk to you. Yeah. And these Norwegians come up, right? Like, do you remember this? They like see these like people that you, they're like, oh, hey, like Seagate, can we sit down with you? Come, come join us. We brought sandwiches. <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, so yeah, I, I they, they did a pretty decent job. Um, it's funny. I think uh, if anybody was portrayed a little bit weirdly, it, it was probably some of the British people that were back at the at headquarters because they they were they were just like very very British in terms of like the the professory character that was talking about his conversations with Oppenheimer and Eisen and, and um, Einstein and everything. It was it was obviously weird to see Kirk Douglas play in Norwegian, but I don't know. I, it didn't seem like it was so bad. It was. Uh, he didn't have a, a Norwegian accent. He didn't try. Uh, I don't think it, did he even speak Norwegian at any point in the movie. Uh, I no, don't think so. no, no attempted accents, right? And like as I've kind of demonstrated, it's not that hard to do like a Norwegian American accent. Like you know, these days, like you know, characters invest a ton in like language training, accent yeah. training, right? You know, I mean, it could have been nice if they'd invested a tiny little bit. I would also say this, like, so the Kirk Douglas character is obviously like a very cocky white male. Um, Norwegians are typically socially kind of reserved and humble. Um, we do, like, for instance, uh, so when we moved back to Norway in November, uh, I got my wife this like little cartoon book of like Norwegian social culture, you know, rules, right? Uh, one of them is like, no, thou shalt not lock eyes with a stranger on the bus. If you do look down for 10 seconds, apologize profusely, <laughs> right? Like things like that. Obviously Kirk Douglas's character was very, you know, confident, sexist, um, kind of like the opposite of the typical Norwegian male, but you know, that's, yep. yeah, that's fine. It's yep. a Hollywood movie. Yeah. On that, do you think this movie needed the, the love story? Oh, God, no. It was required for 1960s uh, British Hollywood productions. But I don't know. I mean, like, there, it gave an arc to the, the character of like, well, I wasn't, I don't want to be involved. And you got, I got pulled into the operation. But they could have done that, I think, without without that, um, for sure. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, like, I, I thought that the, the story is fascinating without that addition. Uh, it is a little weird, though, because I was just thinking about this, right? Like, so what else was coming out around 1965, right? Well, so in 64, you had Dr. Strangelove come out. Um, I think also the first Bond movie, right? Dr. No was also in the 60s, right? something like that hmm. um a weird coincidence so this ulla jacobson looks kind of freakishly similar to ursula andrus who was also like you know the sex yeah. goddess of from dr no right that was 60 62 yeah yeah exactly so that that had come out i feel like they kind of were like well we have to make a big successful movie we we need this element yeah it would have been um probably okay without it if they were to remake this movie today i would i would love to say that they wouldn't have it but i'm sure they would also find a way to add it in here i'm sure i like that she was a resistance fighter it wasn't just someone that decided to join to stick around she was you know contributing to the operation because I, I know her character the director and writer had said that they definitely were analogs of people that they knew that were involved in um you know women that were involved in this you know, res resistance it wasn't definitely just the men and the commandos that were involved there were a lot of others that were that were but it's funny even the norwegian you know broadcasting miniseries creates characters there's there's a, a character they create that's i don't know if you watch um the marvel movies but there's agent carter who is 
the person who's uh she's heavily involved in like the original part of shield she's uh she gets together with with captain america but she's her own spy she had a pretty good tv show on her own she's basically like a a super spy starting you know fbi kind of person a person that looks a lot like her for this norwegian show and she's not not real they kind of made her up but they said she was a amalgamated character similar to ulana in the uh chernobyl show the the female scientist was never not a real person but she was represented others uh that were involved that weren't the main you know main people so i don't know they they do okay and any other things that you found interesting with the with this particular movie particularly that i don't know how often you watch 1960s five type films but it is definitely different than the kind of films you you would see today and i think watching the miniseries really showed me how different things are um, with this, but I don't, I don't have anything interesting to add to that. I just kind of found at least that that piece of it was interesting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at my notes here, and the only thing I noted was, um, yeah, there is a scene in the movie where like one of the saboteurs dies, like it's shot by the Germans. Like I said, like not a single shot was fired. Mm. Um, so again, I, I feel like they thought that they needed to create some like you know some drama, some action, some gunfire. But again, there there was there was no gunfight. Yeah, which is definitely, you know, that's a good sabotage operation, right? Is that you don't get caught. Yeah. Um, that's really don't their get plan. Better than that. Yeah, that's certainly their plan. Um, so let's let's wrap up here. Uh, let's do our rating system where we rate Heroes of Telemark out of five, uh, with one being the worst and five being terrific. You know, the old Likert scale. Um, I deal with Likert scales all the time at work, so might as well do it here. I like to tailor the rating system so that it's, you know, based on the plot that we just we just watched uh i've gotten together uh back at the uk i've talked to einstein and oppenheimer and i've come up with this rating system scale of one to five ticking clock time bombs so kirk douglas tells ula in the movie that they're building two different ticking clock time bombs so if one doesn't go off the other will but that's great but what if you have five ticking clock time bombs that sounds like a blast and a perfect time to me how many of the, how many of those would you give will i would i would give it a solid two yeah, uh, that's rough. Two out of five. Two out of five. I go two point five. I think the movie doesn't age well for me. Um, the scenes, though, the the action scenes are pretty entertaining. I like the fact that they do a decent job of showing the various points during this operation. I think they make the the final climactic ferry uh, as kind of suspenseful as it can be. You know, showing it in the movie, but it was a hard watch. I, these are one of those movies that didn't need to be two hours long. Oh God, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I felt I felt like the miniseries, which again was like five or six episodes in an hour each, went by faster uh, than watching this movie. But I, you know, I look. Do I recommend it? I, I think it's interesting for people to watch. I think at one point when I learned that Michael Douglas was heavily involved at Plowshare stuff, I actually sent our old uh, mentor. Uh, Joe Cirincioni, who's been a, a, a guest on this sh- a podcast, I sent him a copy of this movie, and I said, "Hey, Kirk Douglas, Michael Douglas, you, maybe your staff might enjoy this movie." So I think he made his staff watch this film, and I hope that's funny. I hope ne- none of them found out that I was the one that sent it because I don't think I would recommend it to people to to watch. But it, it is interesting. Um, Two point five out of five, not too bad. That's funny. I'll I'll ask Jeff about that because uh, he would have been yeah. in that uh, that pool uh, of people that would have been exposed to that. Uh, so yeah, Jeff Wilson, former guest of the of the podcast, future guest, hopefully soon. See see if he remembers that and and, and wants to throw anything uh, my way. That's we don't maybe recommend you know based on our rating this movie, but maybe there's some other stuff that people can learn about the story itself. I've got a, I've got a couple of things here. Someone 
on Twitter, uh, a friend of the podcast who hosts a real fun show called Exploding Helicopters, which is about every time a helicopter explodes in a movie, recommended a book called A Man Called Intrepid, which is about a British Secret Service agent, William Stevenson, uh, who during World War II was, was heavily involved in this operation. But, you know, you mentioned already The Winter Fortress by, by Neil Bascom. I definitely recommend that one from 2016. I recommend a movie called The Final Countdown. I just want to watch as many Kirk Douglas nuke movies as possible because he's in a lot of them. This is one from 1980. It's a sci-fi action movie where um, him and Martin Sheen is also in it. They are in a, a you know a relatively modern uh, for 1980 uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. But of course, it's a sci-fi movie, so it travels in time back to the day before the Pearl Harbor attack. And they try to figure out what they're going to do to maybe try to stop, you know, pro- the attack on Pearl Harbor uh, that started World War U.S. involvement, anyways, in World War II. Finally, I don't know how how easy it is to get access to this, but I, I learned that there is a VR game from 2020 called Medal of Honor Above and Beyond, and one of the missions you can go on is to be part of this commando raid of a Norwegian heavy water plant, uh, reminiscent of this story that we saw here. And I know you and I have some fun history that we don't need to get into when it comes to you breaking my VR headset because it was too interactive. And I'll just leave that happened after our atomic um, alcohol episode. So anyways, just want to let you know, Will, if you want to get back into the VR game, there's apparently one where you can live your Norwegian sabotage dream. Yeah, well, the the game sounds super fun. Um, I will probably do it with my own VR headset <laughs> so I can destroy, avoid destroying your, your living room. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so in terms of, uh, re- I've got a couple of resources as well. We've talked about the show, The Heavy Water War. It's on Amazon Prime 2016. Um, full disclosure, I haven't seen it yet, but it's a mini series um, that is obviously much more recent and gets a little bit into um, more of the historical detail uh, surrounding the mission, which I'm looking forward to getting into. Um, the other, so talking about historical details, so the Norwegian Homefront Museum um, is the original resource for a lot of new Bascom's book, The Winter Fortress. That's mm. where he pulled it directly from. Um, it's got a lot of the original transcripts of, of meetings, of Ben's, um, pictures, uh, imagery, like really, really cool. So I, I highly recommend that. They have a website. Um, just just Google Norwegian Homefront Museum. You'll, you'll find it. And then uh, the, the third resource I would recommend is Vermork like the actual power plant, it's there. You can go to Yukon. Uh, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, like they have a ferry there that, that takes you across the lake. It's the exact same ferry that they bombed, right? Like it's uh, it's it's really kind of eerie. Like I, I was looking at the website earlier today. It's called uh, www.nia. That's November India Alpha dot no because dot Norway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty cool. So if you're ever in Oslo, Telemark is, uh, is that where this is is about three three hours away. Um, it's it's a cool place to check out. It's on my list of things to do. Well, Will, I've been trying to come up with a good excuse to come visit you and your wife and dog uh, in Norway since you you left the DC area so so suddenly for us. Once now that you know, as COVID stuff starts to dwindle down, I think it sounds like a trip we're going to be making, and um, it'll be nice to see you. But I'm also excited to see this uh, water heavy water plant. <laughs> <laughs> 
Definitely. And you know, uh, the European Union just opened up for vaccinated American tourists a couple days ago. Norway is not part of the European Union, but uh, we follow 99.9% of their directives and rules. So uh, Norway should be opening up pretty soon. Excellent. Terrific. Well, Will, thanks so much for coming back on the show here. Uh, Where can people find you uh, online these days? I know uh, you still publish and write lots of op-eds. Probably can find you uh, on Twitter. Where can we find you uh, on that? Yeah, you, you guys can find me on the Twitter sphere at Will Satron. Um, no underscores. It's straightforward W I L L S A E T R E N. Great. Thanks, Will. Uh, we miss you here in, uh, in the DC area, but it's fun to chat with you again uh, over Zoom. And that's why I enjoy this podcast as hard as it is sometimes to keep up with episodes. Um, I'm sure the audio quality dropped a little bit on this episode because I don't even know where all my he- equipment is because we're trying to move and sell my house. It's just a weird, crazy time. But the reason why I do it is to keep in touch with people like you and have these fun conversations. So thanks so much for joining us again. Yeah, and if I can, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, thanks for the opportunity to plug myself a little bit. But, you know, uh, I, I kind of want to plug you a little bit because I don't think a lot of your listeners know that um, this is something that Tim does entirely on his own time there, there's no money involved for in, in this for him uh this is something he does in his free time and it is really time consuming work so you know in the time in the years that i've known you uh i've really just become increasingly amazed that you find the time to to pull this off um and it's a real asset to to the nuclear uh policy community so uh thank you tim thanks it's a lot you can get done uh between the hours of uh 12 and uh 2 a.m uh, when the toddler's asleep and the, I can I can get to actually get to work. Um, so thanks again. Appreciate that. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either, you know, how terrible my pronunciation is of anything Norwegian or German um, or maybe something related to the movie, there's a couple ways you can contact the show. I'm on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. Website, we've got one, supercriticalpodcast.com. And I also check an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Will Sitcher. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get supercritical about it. Will, how would you say have a good one in your region? Hanfotifli, dog. Yes, that. Thanks. Thanks.